In Minneapolis, where I live, there's a curious little establishment with a deliciously clever sign outside showing a man in aviator goggles and a scarf. And the name of this place? The Cockpit. That's right, it's a gay bar. You likely have something similar in your neck of the woods. They're fairly ubiquitous these days. But have you ever wondered where they came from and the struggles that people went through to make them happen? I can tell you, it involved a whole lot more than just coming up with a clever pun. Today, we feature Joey Brunel of the podcast Born Yesterday, who's going to tell us all about the history of gay bars. That's what we're talking about today on the History of Sex Showcase. I want to thank our Patreon patron, Jennifer Sosnowski, for making this episode possible. Today is our very first showcase episode where we feature other podcasters talking about sex and gender to begin to create a sense of community around this underserved topic in history. Our guest episode today is by Joey Brunel of the podcast Born Yesterday. Joey is a podcaster and activist from California. He does identify as gay himself, and I identify with him as a fellow podcaster striving to put out high-quality work while doing it all by yourself. What you're going to hear today, it's all him. Guys like us, we're not supported by NPR or Slate or the BBC. We don't have a team of producers and executives. We're just dudes with passions, and in Joey's case, that passion is clear. All right, now, with no further ado, I'll turn it over to Joey, presenting the history of gay bars. And now, and now for our now, feature now, presentation. presentation. Let's play a game. I'll describe a scene, and you tell me the year we're in. Ready? Here we go. We're in a bar. The crowd is all men, most of whom are drinking, some of whom are dancing. And on this particular night, we're treated to a little performance. There are three men in drag who refer to each other as sisters acting out a little scene. One is dressed as a midwife, another is dressed as a nun, and a third is dressed as a pregnant woman with a cushion stuffed up her dress. And of course, she's in labor. It's quite a body scene, and when she gives birth to a little wooden baby, it's a boy, of course, a fourth man appears, dressed as a priest, and baptizes it. And the crowd goes wild. So, any guesses? Is this 1982, maybe, in New York? Or how about 1968 in sunny San Francisco? Or even 1922 at the Moulin Rouge in Paris? Nope, you're all wrong. It's 1709, and we're in London, in one of the first gay bars. Welcome to Born Yesterday, a podcast about the past. I'm Joey Brunel. Every two weeks, we'll look at the most awesome bits of history, the kinds of fun things you definitely didn't learn about in school. This week, we're pouring ourselves a strong gin and tonic and looking at the colorful but underground history of the gay bar. Before I begin, just a note about the content of this episode. I've tried to keep things as clean as possible, but when talking about gay bars, some adult terms inevitably come into the conversation. So consider this your warning to maybe not send this one around to your grandparents, or maybe put in earbuds if you're at work. Okay, great. 
So the story begins around 1700, because that's the earliest we have any evidence for anything resembling the modern gay bar. Were there gays and lesbians before 1700? Absolutely, and we have a pile of evidence for that from all parts of the world, but no evidence for the places where they hung out. But if you ask me, I find it very hard to believe that you couldn't find a single gay bar anywhere on Earth before 1700. Why? Well, gay bars are a fundamentally urban phenomenon. The only place you'll have a large enough concentration of gays to make a gay bar profitable is a major city. And cities were not invented in 1700. Rome, at its height, was a huge metropolis with a million people. London wouldn't be that big until 1800. Or take Beijing, or Alexandria, or hell, even Babylon. Were there gays there? You bet. And I can't imagine that not a single entrepreneur ever thought, hmm, I'd make a lot of money if I started selling to this demographic. But unfortunately, there's sadly absolutely zero evidence of any of this. Part of the problem is that before roughly the 1600s, being gay wasn't an identity, it was just an activity. Just because you messed around with people of the same gender once in a while, it didn't mean anything. It just meant that you did that once in a while. Ours is a culture obsessed with identities. We think that everything you do should be part of your identity. If you drink coffee, you should be a coffee snob. If you play golf, you're a golfer. But the ancient world just didn't work that way. So you could hook up with a boy every so often and still be married to a woman. But that started to change roughly around the European Renaissance, though I don't really know why. We start seeing laws against sodomy across Europe being strengthened. In 1497, the Spanish monarchs made sodomy a crime equal to treason. In 1532, the Holy Roman Empire, which was neither holy nor Roman nor an empire, made sodomy punishable by death. The year after, English passed, and I'm not making this up, the Buggery Act, and uh, buggery was a capital crime until 1861. As European cities were growing out of the Middle Ages, suddenly society was worrying a whole lot about what kind of sex people were having. And I suspect that once these activities were forced underground, the gay underground subculture started to develop. Because by the time we get to London in around 1709, things look pretty well established. For one thing, the English language had already acquired its first slang term for gays, mollies, not to be confused with the drug or Irish prostitutes. And there are things called molly houses, inns or taverns where mollies would congregate for an evening or for a night. Luckily for historians, molly houses started appearing simultaneously with investigative journalists, so that's how we know just about everything we know about them. A man named Ned Ward, an investigative journalist, wrote a first-hand account of what went on inside molly bars. The scene I described at the top of the show with the men in drag and the fake birth and all that, it was lifted almost verbatim from Ned Ward's testimony. Here, listen to this and tell me if it sounds at all familiar. There are a particular gang of sodomitical wretches in this town who call themselves the Mollies and are so far degenerated from all masculine deportment or manly exercises that they'd rather fancy themselves women, imitating all the little vanities that custom has reconciled to the female sex, affecting to speak, walk, tattle, curtsy, cry, scold, and to mimic all manner of effeminacy, not omitting the indecencies of lewd women, that they may tempt one another by such immodest freedoms to commit those odious bestialities that ought forever to be without a name. Is that 18th century London or San Francisco pride?
But the Molly houses were frequently raided by the authorities, who shut them down and arrested their patrons. The most famous raid was in 1726, when police shut down a handful of Molly houses in the span of a month. Dozens of gay men were arrested, some found with their pants unbuttoned, and most were released due to lack of evidence. But some were fined or imprisoned, and three were hanged. One of the Molly houses shut down in the raid was actually a coffee house run by a woman named, and I'm not making this up either, Margaret Clapp. I think she might be the first fag hag in recorded history. She's described as a married straight woman who just loved the company of her gay patrons. She arranged for entertainment and private lodgings for her customers, and would even get them alcoholic drinks from the tavern next door for a price. Mother Clapp, they called her. She was so beloved that a gay man showed up at the prison with enough money to pay her bail. But she and her mollies were ratted out by one of their own. A man named Mark Partridge had been publicly outed by a former lover, and when the police learned about him, they conned him into being an informant. He took a constable to Molly House after Molly House, including Mother Claps, introducing him to his friends as his husband. I have to give this constable credit for acting so naturally amongst dancing and kissing gay men that no one ever suspected he was the police. The constable later testified for the court the following. I found between 40 and 50 men. Sometimes they would sit on one another's laps, kissing in a lewd manner, and using their hands indecently. Then they would get up, dance, and make their curtsies, and mimic the voices of women. Then they'd hug and play and toy and go out by couples into another room on the same floor to be married, as they called it. Incidentally, after the Great Raid of 1726, some guy wrote a long treatise going on at great length about how evil the sodomites were. But he did say that they were, quote, really very good customers where they frequent. If you're wondering what's going on in America at this time, don't. There weren't big cities in the colonies yet, and the colonists were generally unfriendly towards homosexual behavior. In 1624, a man was tried and hanged in the Virginia colony for sodomy, and at the end of the 17th century, two men were convicted of sodomy in New York State. One was strangled, the other was put into a sack and thrown into the Hudson. But things in France were much, much better. The French had laws in the books against sodomy like everyone else, but they gradually lessened the punishment until it was equal to public drunkenness. But the French didn't have molly houses. They took a more guerrilla gay bar approach. Groups of 15 to 30 men would arrange to meet at a certain tavern on a certain night. This was probably fun, but wasn't quite the rowdy bar culture that existed in larger London at the same time. Then, in 1791, during the French Revolution, a group of, quote, sodomite citizens petitioned the new French Republic to decriminalize homosexuality. They succeeded, and France became the first European nation to do so. This change also applied to all of France's overseas colonies, so it was kind of a big deal. And that's pretty much everything we know about gay bars in the 18th century. Unfortunately, that's also pretty much everything we know about gay bars in the 19th century, too. The trail goes very cold, mostly because the homophobic prudes of the Victorian era never, ever talked about anything gay, unless it was in the context of scandals or a hanging. But were there still molly houses, or whatever molly houses evolved into? I'm almost certain of it. I can't imagine that there were molly houses for the better part of the 18th century, then they disappeared, not to be revived again until the 20th. 
Instead, I think what happened was that they lapsed from the record because the writers of the 19th century didn't know how to talk about them. Let me explain. In 19th century Britain, gay men were still being arrested and imprisoned at a rate of about 50 per year in London alone. At every trial I've read, including Oscar Wilde's, the subject of prostitution comes up. These men engaged prostitutes. They went to male brothels, said the prosecutors. But there are two very weird things about this. First, if there were as many brothels in London as are referenced in the court records, there must have been one on every block. Second, almost every time an accused man testified about these prostitutes, they made no reference to any money-changing hands. Instead, he bought his companion beer or liquor or dinner. If these were really prostitutes, they are the strangest prostitutes I have ever heard of. Drinks and dinner? That's not a prostitute. That's a date. So here's my guess as to what happened. The hetero-Victorian authorities just couldn't conceive of homosexuals having lives equivalent to their own, much less sex lives. And since they already considered gays lewd and uncivilized, they just lumped them in with other unacceptable activities, like prostitution. So the 19th century molly houses were just called brothels. In fact, there are writings going back to the late 17th century that mention sodomites congregating around places they called brothels including brothels around the site where Buckingham Palace now stands, by the way. My hunch is that Molly House only came into use, briefly, because that investigative journalist in 1709 infiltrated the gay underground and found their word. But most of these weren't really brothels in the true Nevada sense of the word. Even the White Swan, a so-called brothel raided in 1810, seemed to be part lodge, part pub, part bathhouse, and part drag theater. These were gay bars, places where gay men would meet, drink, carouse, and be entertained. Well, we're almost at the 20th century, and I've barely mentioned anything outside Western Europe. I should probably remedy that. As cities around the globe are exploding at the turn of the century, gay communities are growing in nearly all of them. For example, Singapore, a British colony in Southeast Asia, developed a vibrant underground gay and transgender scene. One of the earliest police raids on homosexuals in the 20th century was actually in Mexico City. Mexico had decriminalized homosexuality in 1871, but that didn't stop the police under dictator Porfirio Diaz from raiding a drag ball at a private home in 1901. 19 men in drag were arrested and 41 men total, leading the event to become known as the Dance of the 41, or El Valle de los 41. The number 41 would become associated positively and negatively with gay culture in Mexico. And of course, there was New York. New York City had been coming into its own as well, and in fact, there had been a gay scene there since before the Civil War, and we know about it mostly from the writings of Walt Whitman. In the late 1850s, he started frequenting a beer cellar called Faf's on Bleecker Street, which was a hangout for bohemians of all stripes, including the gays. Walt fell in with a group of gay men who called themselves the Fred Gray Association, and they'd regularly meet there and elsewhere to eat, drink, and be merry. The Civil War would break up their group, unfortunately, as many of the members would join the Union Army. But the fact that they existed and even thrived unbothered in 1850s New York is evidence that there were definitely places probably of a mixed character, where they could congregate without fear. 
In the 1910s and 20s, gay culture exploded into the urban mainstream like never before. Instead of gays and lesbians hiding from the public at their own underground bars and clubs, suddenly hetero hipsters wanted to join them in their fun. Drag balls became the cool entertainment in New York, Paris, and elsewhere for both gay and straight alike. The first openly gay bar, possibly in the world, the Cave of the Golden Calf, opened in London in 1912. I say the first openly gay bar because there have been plenty of underground gay bars before this time, but this one advertised itself publicly as a place given up to gaiety. It was open for just two years before going bankrupt, but was widely regarded as the center of the gay universe for those two years, and a destination for the hippest hipsters, gay and straight. By the way, much later on, David Bowie would use the former entrance to the cave as the backdrop for the cover of the Ziggy Stardust album. Anyway, the Cave of the Golden Calf opened the floodgates for a huge number of gay bars to open across the world in the 20s and 30s, and this is when we start to really remember names. In Paris, the 20s saw the opening of Monocle, which was basically the first lesbian nightclub. Chez Ma Cousine, literally my cousin's house, was a gay club with dancing and drag that opened behind the Moulin Rouge. Le Petit Chaumière, just down the hill from the Moulin Rouge, was a drag or even a cross-dressing piano bar that became a destination for adventurous tourists. One of those tourists wrote, This is not a nice place, strictly speaking. This is a place where men dress as women, men of a certain degenerate tendency who infest every large city. If, however, you do not want to see these freaks cavort around and swish their skirts and sing in falsetto and shout, Whoops, my dear, this is the place to see them. Nothing is said of a coarse nature, and you leave quite as unsullied as when you entered. It's meant to be funny. Take it that way, rather than to bother to analyze it or to be shocked. In my research, I found another 14 other Parisian gay or mixed bars mentioned by name from this decade. 14. In Berlin, the El Dorado, a bar for gays, lesbians, and the transgendered, opened in 1926. It was famous for its dances and drag shows, and became a destination for celebrities, until the stupid Nazis shut it down in 1933. But if you're in Berlin, you can still check it out today, it's just a grocery store. Mexico City was chock full of gay bars, and by World War II there were as many as 15 in a city of 1.6 million people. But in the United States, things were a bit weird, not only because it was illegal to be gay, but because it was illegal to serve alcohol from 1920 until 1933. Prohibition forced an already underground scene even deeper underground, but it was definitely still there. Chicago's Old Town neighborhood had been full of gay bars before Prohibition, and was again after Prohibition, so I can only assume that everything was still there during Prohibition. It was all just hush-hush, and the gay community by this point had gotten really good at hush-hush. But in 1933, our long, sober nightmare was finally over, and new bars of every shape, size, and color sprung up absolutely everywhere. Here's where we get into a bit of an argument, though, because every one of the bars that claim to be the oldest still-operating gay bar in the U.S. date back to the same year, 1933. There's Casino in Seattle, of all places. It was a basement joint opened in 1933, and after a little while it became the place where the gays, lesbians, and drag queens of the city would congregate. 
Over the next 30 years, they would gradually move upstairs out of the basement into the more mainstream pub called the Double Header. You can still find the Double Header and the Casino Pool Room in Pioneer Square in Seattle today, but it's no longer a gay bar, it's just a normal sports bar. And while this gay bar is old, I think I have to disqualify it, because in 1933, when it first opened, it wasn't actually a gay bar. It just became a gay bar over time. Then there's Lafitte on Bourbon Street in New Orleans, which opened in, you guessed it, 1933. It started as a gay speakeasy, then after Prohibition became instantly a gay bar, with gas lamps and period decor. Its real name is actually Lafitte's Blacksmith Shop, and considering that the building it's in was built before 1772, maybe at one point it was a blacksmith shop. Nobody really knows. But that's not its original building. Originally, it was next door. In 1953, they lost their lease and had to move it to where it is now. It might be a technicality, but I think it's enough to hand the crown to the next in line. And the bar next in line is the White Horse Inn of Oakland, California. The White Horse Inn opened in, say it with me now, 1933. And it isn't an inn, it's just a neighborhood pub, with pool tables, bar stools, and glasses hanging from the ceiling above the bar. It's not a former blacksmithery, it's not a drag venue, it wasn't visited by Frank Sinatra, but it was never raided by the police, it never moved, and it was never shut down. It's widely regarded as the oldest still-operating gay bar in the country, and aspires to be what every gay bar should be. In the words of a 73-year-old patron, no matter what's happening in your life, you can still come in here and people will treat you with empathy and kindness. But, and there's always a but, I should mention that many, if not most, gay bars in the early 20th century were segregated, as in whites only. Even the gay community wasn't immune from 20th century racism. For example, there were lots of gay bars in Cleveland, Ohio in the 1940s, but only one of them was integrated. Gay African Americans congregated in private homes instead. Theirs is a parallel story that probably requires and deserves an entire separate episode to tell. After everyone came back from World War II, there were gay bars in just about every major and minor city in the country. No, really. Akron, Ohio had gay bars. Gay bars, plural. Now don't get me wrong, things are far from perfect. There was still plenty of state-sanctioned homophobia out there. In New York, it's illegal to serve alcohol to gays, and illegal to talk about homosexuality on a stage. In Los Angeles, the police ran a vice squad that entrapped gay men the same way they entrapped employers of prostitutes. Officers would pose as gay men in bars, hit on some unsuspecting gay, and when they left the bar to have a little fun, the handcuffs came out, and not in the fun way. Lesbian bar owners in many cities had to have men pose for them to get liquor licenses. Bars were still raided across the country, and even when no one was charged with anything, their names, addresses, and employers were published in the newspaper the next day, which destroyed way more lives than prison time did. Still, many bars tried to avoid raids by, for example, having strict rules about dancing too close or socializing too much. Others paid off the police, and others still stayed underground with secret passwords and signals, like a well-placed handkerchief. But things were about to really start changing. Fighting for freedom overseas soon turned into fighting for freedom at home. Gay bars would become more than just underground watering holes, they'd become centers of political activism. And San Francisco was where this all started. 
SF had seen an enormous gay boom after World War II, in large part because it was where the army would drop off men they had discharged for being gay. After the war, many gay vets heard rumors about the city's growing gay community and went there, instead of going back to Indiana or North Carolina or Florida. Into this environment stepped the Black Cat Bar, just north of the financial district. It had originally opened in 1906, right after the 1906 earthquake, but it didn't become a gay bar until a straight man named Saul Stuman bought it in the mid-40s. After that, it became a hub for bohemians, beats, and gays, including both John Steinbeck and Jack Kerouac. Part of Kerouac's On the Road is actually set in the Black Cat. It was so open, so radical, that in 1951, the army put it on a list of places that soldiers were prohibited from entering. In 1948, not long after Saul took over the Black Cat, the SFPD had their liquor license revoked on some trumped-up charge. Instead of just taking it, though, Saul made a stand, the first stand, and took the city to court. Eventually, the California Supreme Court got involved, and they ruled the city couldn't actually shut down a bar just because gay people were hanging out there. The state of California then turned around and just changed the rules for liquor licenses to allow revocation for, quote, resorts of sexual perverts. This triggered another lawsuit, this time by an Oakland gay bar, and subsequently the new rule was deemed unconstitutional too. The police would continue to raid the Black Cat, but now it and other bars were organizing and lawyering up. Saul Steumann alone would spend tens of thousands of dollars of his own money fighting the city and state in court until he ran out of money and had to close the bar for good in 1964. But while it was open, the Black Cat would become the headquarters of LGBT activism in San Francisco. At the encouragement of the management, gay men and lesbian women were allowed to be open and themselves at the bar. Every night before closing, they would sing a song of solidarity towards the city jail across the street, specifically at the gay men who had been arrested in raids the night before who were still being held. LGBT support organizations were organized by people who either met at the bar or worked at the bar. On top of all that, a man named Jose Saria, who was a waiter and drag performer at the Black Cat, ran for city supervisor in 1961, becoming the first openly gay man to run for political office anywhere in the United States. The support groups soon turned into political activism groups, the first gay rights groups, which in the parlance of the time were called homophile groups, or part of the homophile movement. New York City was a particularly important hotbed of this activity, and a lot of the excitement centered around the city's policy towards gays and bars. So the state had a rule on the books that prevented bars from serving alcohol to the disorderly, but the police interpreted disorderly as gay, which led to gay bars being closed for just existing, and for normal bars to worry about being closed if their customers were gay. This meant that if you were a bit swishy and you walked up to a bar and ordered a martini, the bartender might just stare back at you instead of reaching for the gin. This was the situation at a bar called Julius in Greenwich Village, which had been around since the 19th century. But it had only recently attracted the gays and the owners weren't so happy about that and harassed their new patrons. In 1966, a group of enterprising young activists decided to challenge this policy in court, so they walked into Julia's one day and announced, We are homosexuals, we are orderly, and we intend to remain orderly, and we are asking for service. They dubbed this little act of protest a sip-in. 
After the bartender refused to serve them, they had their pretext for a lawsuit, and they won that lawsuit. The courts ruled that gays had a right to peaceably assemble, and that included at bars, and from then on, gay bars were nominally legal in the state of New York. Protests and actions like the sip-in at Julius were becoming more common. In 1966, a small riot started in San Francisco when police came to arrest some transgendered people at a cafeteria, the Compton's Cafeteria Riot. On New Year's Eve in 1967, another riot broke out in Los Angeles at the Black Cat Tavern, not to be confused with the Black Cat Bar in SF, when police arrested some gay New Year's revelers for kissing. And I think you know where this road leads, back to New York to the epic Stonewall riots of 1969. If you want to understand what happened at Stonewall, you have to understand just how bad things were for gay bars in the city in the 1960s. Honestly, you won't believe how bad it was. So, for one thing, almost all the real gay and lesbian bars weren't operated by gays. They were operated by the Mafia, which meant that drinks were watered down, patrons were harassed, and conditions were generally pretty terrible. But the Mafia was the only group willing or able enough to prevent police raids by bribery or put up with the raids by having secret liquor compartments and watchmen down the street. The Stonewall Inn was one such bar. It was a dirty, dark, dingy place, and not in the cool way. But it was the only gay bar in the entire city of New York where gays could dance. Just think about that for a second. Gays had been able to dance at molly houses in 18th century London, but weren't allowed to do the same thing at gay bars in New York City just 40 years ago. Anyway, the Stonewall wasn't a classy elite cocktail bar. It was a dive bar of the lowest order. It was where all the outcasts from the outcast gay community went. The transgendered, the homeless, and the lost. And the police raided the place so frequently, about once a month, that the Mafia owners had developed an elaborate set of signals to alert patrons to stop touching because the police were on their way. In fact, most patrons at Stonewall were quite accustomed to police raids and arrests. Here's what typically happened. The police would walk in the front door, announce that the bar was being taken over, flip on all the lights, and block all the exits. Then they'd line everyone up and start checking IDs. If you didn't have an ID, you were arrested. If you were in full drag, you were arrested. If you were dressed as a woman, you were taken into a back room and an officer would confirm your biological gender. If you were male but dressed as a woman, you were arrested. If you were female but you wore less than three pieces of feminine clothing, you were arrested. Doesn't this sound like a fun time? Well, on the night of June 28, 1969, the police arrived, and the standard raid script started to play out. But for whatever reason, events quickly went off script. Maybe it was because few of the bargoers that particular night were used to the raids. Maybe it was because the police were especially aggressive that night. Maybe it was because the community's frustration had finally reached a breaking point. Maybe all of these things. Regardless, as some people were put in handcuffs and others were let go, a crowd began to form outside the bar. But by the time police started to take away their prisoners, the crowd had grown to a couple hundred people, and that crowd was angry, in a way that crowds in the 1960s were famous for being angry. They mocked the police, they shouted at the police, they saw the police beat people in the crowd and people they had captive. And when one lesbian, whose identity we still don't know, shouted to the crowd, why don't you guys do something? They did something. 
They started throwing pennies, then bottles, then bricks. Eventually, both the crowd and the police got reinforcements, but the police were still outnumbered and soon found themselves retreating from a riot. Trash cans were lit on fire, police cars were smashed. It was jubilant mayhem. But the importance of Stonewall was the aftermath, not the destruction itself. In the wake of this night's events, the gay community started to crawl out of the shadows, to climb out from behind their secret bars and blacked-out windows. After finding gay power at Stonewall, they began to develop the confidence to be themselves publicly, and then demanded their rights. Gay rights organizations continued to spring up, more normal people turned into activists, and all because one night in 1969, the police tried to take their booze. This, of course, would lead to a world of changes over the next four decades. But through it all, bars continued to be a place of refuge, of entertainment, and of activism. I'll end this story back in San Francisco, just four years after Stonewall in 1973. I left my heart. Two lesbians opened a bar at 17th and Castro Streets. In, in a sign of things to come, they installed huge plate glass windows on two sides facing the busy street. It was the first gay bar in the country to dare show itself to the world. They named it Twin Peaks, after the hills you can see out those windows. It's still there today, and let me tell you, they make a mean Irish coffee. Climb halfway to the stars The morning fog made chill Well, that's this week's episode. If you like what you heard, I wouldn't mind if you liked our Facebook page at facebook.com slash bornyesterdaypodcast. Also, would you do me a solid and leave a nice review on iTunes? Just search for Born Yesterday in the iTunes store and drop a note there. And remember, history doesn't repeat itself, but it does rhyme. Hey, thanks for listening, everybody. That was Joey Brunel of the podcast Born Yesterday. It features topics from all across history, going far beyond LGBTQ issues. In fact, my favorite series of his is the one on Rome's wars with Carthage. So if you're listening to this, you're probably a history buff, so I think you're going to love Born Yesterday. Check it out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get podcasts. All right, that's it for today, folks. I'm BT Newberg, and this has been the History of Sex Showcase. Now available to all video cassette.